John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the, fee- when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I want to welcome those that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. Believe is our current teaching series, working our way through the gospel according to John. And the purpose of this book by John is found in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to talk about... Uh, This weekend's title is, It's a Party, exclamation mark. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. Let me start off by just saying, uh, growing up in the church, when I was in my teens and 20s, growing up in the church, I would from time to time hear people say something along these lines. I want to go out and have some fun before I settle down and commit my life to Christ. And even as a, as a kid in my teens and 20s, I knew better. I thought, what are you, delusional? Or at least you're deceived because that's coming from a person who actually thinks that there is greater pleasure in this world than what can be found in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the big battle oftentimes in our hearts. Take a look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. Partying is rarely associated with the Bible and Christ's followers, but it should be. The Bible's many references to singing, dancing, celebration, feast, and festivities depict not only worship, but also fun, laughter, and pleasure. The kingdom of God is a party, and everyone is invited. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. Now, he, he tells us uh, the, uh, what the purpose of this first sign is in verse 11 in our text. This is the first of his signs, so we know this is the first miracle Jesus did in Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, revealing his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Now, if you're making up the story about Jesus, you would make sure his first miracle would show, his first miracle in showing who he is and what he came to do, you would make sure that that first miracle was extremely quintessential. I mean, something like walking on water, raising the dead, opening up blind eyes. But instead, what we have here is a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight and embarrassment. Jesus produces 150 gallons of the best wine to keep the party going. Now, how could that be his first sign? Why would that be his first sign? If we find that odd, it's because we don't understand what Jesus is really all about. And so let's look at three questions that can be answered from our text here this weekend. And the first one is, what does this tell us about Jesus? That's verses one and two. And then what did he come to give us? That's verses six through 10. Excuse me. And then how can we receive it? That's verses three through four. Let's take that first one. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Verses one and two. Let me read those. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. A little background here. A wedding celebration could last as long as, anybody have any idea? At least a week, a week-long celebration. They were supreme occasions filled with festivity and joy. So, so what's, what is Jesus and his disciples doing at a wedding feast, kind of at the start of, of Jesus' ministry? Why would Jesus, on his first journey, take his disciples to a party? I mean, didn't they have work to do? Didn't they have lessons to teach? I mean, didn't Jesus have a mission to fulfill? Wasn't his time limited? How could a wedding fit with his purpose on earth? Jesus went to the wedding because the people who invited him, drum roll please, because the people who invited him liked him. Yeah, in fact, take a look at your first fill in the blank there. Jesus was an enjoyable person to be around, and so should his disciples be. I mean, they liked him. They enjoyed being around him. Jesus wasn't invited because he was a celebrity, because he wasn't one yet. Jesus wasn't invited because he did miracles, because he hadn't done any yet. The Almighty didn't act high and mighty. The Holy One wasn't holier than thou. The one who knew it all wasn't a know-it-all. Luke 7.34, speaking, uh, and, and you often hear this in the gospel accounts, Jesus was negatively labeled as what? A friend of sinners. Oh, he's a friend of sinners. That's terrible. I'm thinking that that's pretty good because I'm a sinner and I need a friend and he's my friend. Luke 15, 1 through 2, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, that's terrible. So let me, uh, let me ask you a question. 
Do you know what an EGR person is? Have you, have you guys ever heard that? Those three letters? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what an EGR person is. <laughs> EGR. So uh, what do you guys think? Extra grace required. Do you know a few of those? Don't point them out in here, okay? Oh, you're, there's a few pointing right now. EGR, extra grace required. I think if you have a small group, you may have one. If you don't have one, we can send you one. But if, if you don't have one, it could be that you're probably it. If your life group keeps changing time and location and forget to tell you, maybe you're an EGR person. Extra grace required. Extra grace required. Everyone is someone's EGR person. You you do know that. Even if you can't identify anyone in that group, you are someone's EGR person. Everybody is. But here's the point. Jesus wasn't an EGR person. They liked him. They they enjoyed him. So let me ask you this question. Are people happy when they see you coming or going? Man, am I glad they finally left. Whoa, they're a drain. Jesus was an enjoyable person to be around and so should his disciples be. Here's the next one. This is what it's telling us, this text, these first two verses. Jesus knew that times of pleasure or fun are just as important as times of work. 1 Peter 6, 17, it says, it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He gives us the things that he gives us so that we can enjoy those things. Proverbs 17, 22, it says, a joyful heart is good medicine, or laughter is good medicine. In fact, you should laugh multiple times throughout the day. It's just really healthy. If you're not laughing much, there's a lot of trouble going on in your heart. So laughter is good medicine. Where did we ever get the notion that Jesus and his disciples were sober, somber, with long faces and heavy hearts? I hate to rain on anyone's dirge, But if there were ever a group of people who should be relational and inspirational and celebrational to be around, it should be Christians. As one theologian puts it, if Christ is gloomy or even calmly stoical, eternity will be a long, long sigh. If ever there were a people who know how to have good, clean, fun, loud laughter and enjoy life to its fullest, it should be Christians. And I think that's what this is telling us about Jesus and his disciples. Here's the third point under this. What does, it, what does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus is and always will be the happiest being in the universe. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you. This is Jesus speaking. Listen to what he says. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
Do you hear what he's saying? He gives us joy. He didn't create us because he was lonely. I heard a guy say that a number uh, within the last year. He was telling me, oh yeah, God created us because he was lonely. <laughs> he could have done a better job than, than us, okay? <laughs> uh, we're not going to help him much. We're kind of a mess. But he created us not because he's lonely, but he, he didn't create us to get joy from us, but to give joy to us, to give joy to us and, and fullness of joy, as it says there in 1511 of John. Now, remember, we define joy. We went through the whole Philippian series. The book is all about joy. We spent the summer trying to boost our joy a bit <laughs> with all the craziness that's going on. And so joy is a buoyancy. So life can push you down. It can't keep you down. Think of the big beach ball that you put in the middle of the pool and you get on top of it, try to ride it, and then you try to push it down under the water. It doesn't, it's not going to stay. It's going to keep coming back to the surface. That's us. No matter how hard life pushes us down, it cannot keep us down. We keep coming back up. That's the joy that Christ gives us. And, and, and this is a buoyancy based on the pleasures we find in the eternal privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. So if it's been a while since you've kind of walked through the eternal pleasures you have in Christ Jesus, you need to do that. You probably need to do that every day because it gives you that buoyancy, that ability to get through the difficulties. Now, John 17, 13, once again, Jesus in his prayer to the Father says this, but now I am coming to you, talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy fulfilled in us. So, let me ask you this question. Is, is this your concept of God? When you think of Jesus and you think of God, does this come to mind? Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord is your God. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Is that what comes to mind when you think of Christ, when you meet him early in the morning in your devotionals? He rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Anytime I read that, I, I'm reminded of... Uh, when the grandkids come over to the house. I mean, there's rejoicing. Woo! Yeah! It's great to see you. I mean, we rejoice when our grandkids come over. Not so much when our kids come over, but uh, I'm kidding. We, we love our kids too. But I think we rejoice a little bit more with the grandkids. And uh, it's, just, it's just a bless. And that's what he's saying here. That's the imagery that I get here. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I mean, there's an excitement, just as we are with our grandkids, very excited when the grandkids visit, when they're over, celebrating. Wow, awesome, good to see you guys. And so that's, it's giving us a picture, a concept of God. See, your concept of God determines the quality of your relationship with God. Do you see God like that? Because that's how the Bible's defining him. He rejoices over us. He loves us. He adores us. That's God. That's Jesus. So what does it tell us about Jesus, that he's an enjoyable person, he knew how to have fun, he's the happiest being in the universe? Here's the next question. What did he come to give us? 
This is based on verses 6 through 10. We'll jump ahead to those verses, and then we'll go back at the end of the study and look at verses 3 through 5. So let me read verses 6 through 10. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So this is the solution to their dilemma of running out of wine. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast, that's, that's an important phrase there, by the way. He's going to say it three times in these two verses. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, and, and there's a parenthesis here, so you'll see oftentimes John will put in parentheses kind of his thoughts, kind of commentary, and he says, oh, yeah, by the way, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. They knew where the wine had come from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom because the bridegroom was responsible for this feast and, and, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, a little background here. Jesus didn't make random choices of objects when they were used in miraculous actions. They were symbols of truths he wanted to communicate. Six is a number in Scripture that represents man. Man was created on the sixth day. These stone water jars were used for ceremonial washing of hands before eating to cleanse themselves of any bad influence associated with what they had touched in their everyday life. Wine is a symbol for joy in the Scripture. Psalm 104.15 makes that clear. So, so let me talk just for a minute about alcohol because there's, there's debate on this and how potent this uh, was. This was the best wine, so I believe that they could have certainly become intoxicated by drinking this. Some, some would argue that it was pretty watered down, so it would require a lot of it to intoxicate someone. And... Um, this is what the Bible says about alcohol, about drinking. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, <clears throat> and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So the Bible actually doesn't uh, teach or demand abstinence when it comes to alcohol, but moderation, self-control, and no drunkenness. In fact, it tells us in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, kind of a life out of control. And so let me just say this, just a, just a few thoughts on alcohol. If drinking alcohol is a problem, then stay away from it. Don't even get close to it. If drinking is not a problem, then do it in moderation. Show some self-control and in love, don't drink around people who do have a problem with it. Do not drink around them. In love. I'm just curious. I mean, when you look at our culture today, would you say that alcohol is not so much of a big problem or it's very much a big problem? What would you guys think? 
Very much a big problem, seriously. I'm just curious here, by show of hands, how many have been negatively affected by someone, someone's alcohol abuse, personally? Okay, look around at all the hands. It's a serious problem in our culture today not to be taken lightly. That's why I've chosen to never touch the stuff. I have never, ever had a drink of alcohol. I don't need it. I don't need it to to make me happy or to medicate myself. I've got plenty of other things to do that with, okay? I've I've got enough problems as it is. I don't need to complicate it. So I have never had a drink of alcohol. And yes, I have more brain cells than some of you. Okay, that was a joke, but it was true. You know that because I've carried on conversation with you. I'm kidding. Just, just a little laughter. So just, that's, that's my two cents on that. It's, the Bible says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. There's a lot of very unwise people in our culture today. That is promoted in our culture. So be cautious, be careful. I believe this was really, really good wine. I've never even had a taste of wine, so I wouldn't even know what good wine is, okay? But apparently, based on the scripture, this was good wine. Here's a couple thoughts. So what did he come to give us? Here's your next point on your notes, next fill in the blank. Man's effort to relate to God through rituals, rules, and religion is empty, cold, and lifeless like the stone water pots. So most people, when you tell them about Christianity, about Christ, this is what comes to mind. Boring. Oh, yeah. Routine. Religious activity. Mechanical. Going to church. Singing some songs. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Man's effort to relate to God through rituals, rules, and religion is empty, cold, lifeless like the stone water pots. Here's the next point. Jesus is the true and better master of the feast who transforms our empty lives into full, free-flowing, and festive kind of lives. That's that's the Christian life. That's that's what Christ came to do. Now, three times in verses 8 through 9, he refers to him as the master of the feast or the master of the party. It was his job to keep the party going with food, drink, and entertaining activities. Now, why would Jesus, for his first miracle, create 150 gallons of the best wine? Because Jesus is the true and better master of the party. That's the point. It It is because Jesus is looking into the future at something of which the present wedding feast is a parable in a pattern. Weddings are a dress rehearsal of the kingdom of God. Look again at verse 11 in our text. This, the first of his signs... Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Signs, yeah, signs point to an ultimate destination. That's what is happening here. The, and what is the ultimate destination? What is this wedding feast and what does every wedding feast point to? The marriage supper of the Lamb. The first seven years we are in heaven, we will be partying. 
We will be celebrating. And I, I gave you the verses there. Isaiah 25, 6. <clears throat> Matthew 8, 11. Revelations, uh, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. And then 20 and 21 talk about that. The Bible opens with a wedding party. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. And closes with a wedding party. Revelation 19 through 22. A wedding party that never ends. And so, what is telling us here and what Jesus wants us to understand and what he did here is really that heaven will be like an all-inclusive resort in Hawaii with all your family and friends you love being with, with Jesus picking up the tab. That's heaven. How many would say you love a good backyard barbecue? Show of hands, backyard barbecue with your family, friends. How about a Thanksgiving meal? It's right around the corner. How about a Christmas party? How about a wedding reception? Good wedding reception. Went to a wedding just recently. We've had a number of weddings recently. And uh, this is what I love about weddings, especially if I'm doing it. But even if I'm not not doing it, I'm sitting out there. I, I love watching this scene. Here's the scene I love the best, is once the groom is up at the front and he's waiting for the bride to come around the corner. And when I've been up there, I I love watching his expression as he's looking down the aisle. And then she comes around the corner. And it's all he can do to contain himself. It's just like, "Ah." settle down, settle down. It's it's almost as if he's going to run out and grab her and swoop swoop, swoop her up into his arms and smother her with kisses. It's not time for that yet, okay. And it's just, there's such excitement, there's such passion, there's such deep affection. You know what that reminds me of when I see that? The deep affection our groom, Jesus, has for his bride, us, the church. He has such deep affection for us. And this is what this is all pointing to. Jesus has come to bring us festival joy now, a taste of it now, and especially later when we're with him for all eternity. Here's the next point on your notes. Just as the wine Jesus made was the best, so life with him is better by far than life without him. That's, that's, that's the Christian life, life with him. So when I go, you go back to that statement that I heard in my teens and 20s, I want to go out, have some fun before I settle down and commit my life to Christ. <laughs> that's insane. Have you not encountered Jesus? Do you not know him? Do you have any idea what you're saying? Most people don't when they say those kind of statements. doesn't make sense. And so here's my question for you. Why, why wait until everything else runs out before turning to God? That's what we're seeing in this party. And that's typically how we live our life. We, we chase romance. We chase our, our education, our career. We chase money. We chase all kinds of stuff. And eventually all of that will run out because it will never satisfy us deep in our soul like only Christ can satisfy us. That's just, it's gonna run out. It's just a matter of time. I know people that are chasing it and I'm just, I'm, I'm just waiting for it to run out so I can point them to Jesus. I've been pointing them to Jesus, but they don't get it. 
and they just keep chasing after one thing after another after another. I just pray, God, I know it's going to run out, but I pray when it does, they don't trade it for some other crazy pursuit, and they would come to you, and they would know you. Jesus himself and all that God is for us in him is our greatest gift. Let me give you some verses here. You can study these on your own. I'll just give you a quick comment with each of these verses. Psalm 4-7, it says this, just to prove my point. Life is better with, with him by far than without him. Uh, Psalm 4-7, he gives us more joy than all the success in this world can give us. I always think of these guys when they win their big Super Bowls and how excited they are and they ticker, ticker tape parades at the, in their cities and all that. That's nothing compared to the joy that he gives us. That's nothing, and that's what he's saying here in Psalm 4-7. 1 Peter 1-8, he gives us unspeakable and glorious joy, indescribable, indestructible joy. There's words that you can't even put to it. And, it's, and no suffering can take it from you. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's this joy that gets you through the difficulties. Psalm 16.11, my favorite, in his presence is fullness of joy. We have his presence. And when you begin to recognize that and live in the reality of it, oh my goodness, there is joy. I mean, that's, that's the first thing I do every day is spend time in his presence so that I can practice his presence throughout the day. I'm still practicing his presence, okay? I still need some work. Sometimes I leave him there in the devotional time, and then I go out throughout the day. I, and so, so in his presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 8410, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in the presence of God than a thousand in your favorite vacation spot days without him. And he goes on, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the, of the wicked. In other words, the lowest position with God is infinitely better than living in luxury without him. Why? Because of the joy we have in him. That's what he came to give us, this festival joy. Now, just just quick comment here on verse 9 where he has these parentheses. And like I said, anytime John uses these parentheses, he's kind of given us commentary, kind of a backstory of, of what's going on. And he's saying here, though the servants who had drawn the water knew where this wine had come. The rest of the people didn't know where this wine came from. But these servants knew Now, the point is, is that Jesus did not require the help of the servants nor the filled jars in order to perform his miracle. He could have done all that without them. But God honors us with significant roles in his work. We are not indispensable, but graciously included. So you want to see a miracle? Start serving. Get involved in ministry. Believe me, my my wife and I have seen miracles over the last 30 years by serving the people at Desert Breeze. It's amazing. And so the servants knew where the wine came from. They kind of saw behind the scenes. When you serve, you see behind the scenes. You know God is working in people's lives. You see it. You have a front row seat to experience that. And so... How did Jesus, what did Jesus come to give? Festival joy. Here's the last one. So how, how can we receive it? Now, this is where I need work, okay? 
So hang in there with me as I work through this to get it down deeper into my heart. I bet you need it too, though, don't you? Okay. There's three of us in here that need it. And I think after I get done with this, you'll probably, all of us will say, "Mm, I'm not living there. I need some help. And so how can we receive it? Verses three through five. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse four, and Jesus said to her, mom, I'm 30 years old. Why are you still bossing me around? I mean, he didn't say that, okay? But that's what I'm thinking. It's like, what? Why is she bossing him? And uh, this is what he did say. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Does, does that sound a little harsh? When you heard it read here earlier, woman. Some of you guys underline that verse in your Bible right there. That's my new favorite verse. Woman, I need something to eat. That's not, yes, somebody just said good luck, huh? <laughs> You're sitting too close for me to hear this thing. So, no, I'm, that's good. That's exactly right. Because actually what's going on here, Jesus' response to his mother seems harsh, but culturally it was a polite way to address her. It was really a term of endearment. When you study this out, Jesus addresses her the same way when he's hanging on the cross and she's standing at the foot of the cross with the writer here, John, and he refers to her as woman. So this isn't a derogatory statement. In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, (laughs) I love it, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. So here's the first thing. If we want to receive this joy, if we want to experience this festival joy, we need to receive and believe in Jesus. That would be the first thing. John chapter 1, verse 12. To those who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, so in becoming a Christian, you have to acknowledge that your sin separates you from God. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe have everlasting life in him. Believe in him. Believe in him. Acknowledge your sin. Believe, uh, believe that he came to die in your place for your sins. Confess him as your Savior and Lord and live your life for him. And so... You've got to receive and believe in Jesus. He says something here in verse 4. He says, my hour has not yet come. It's, it's a bit cryptic. This concept is developed throughout the Gospel of John. And what he was talking about here is the hour of his death. In fact, I gave you the verses there. You can study this out further. John 7.30, 8.20, 12.23, and 13.1. So why would Jesus respond to his mom uh, saying, by, by Jesus saying, it's not my time to die yet. In essence, that's what he's saying. He responds to his mom by saying, it's not my time to die yet. And it's because when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said something. He cried out to the Father. He says, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup that he was talking about passing from him? It was the cup of the Father's wrath. 
And so Jesus is looking ahead and he knows exactly what he's gonna have to do to provide festival joy for each one of us. Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath so that we could drink the cup of his joy. As one commentator put it, Jesus is sitting in the midst of all of this joy, sipping the coming sorrow so that we can sit in the midst of all of the sorrow in this world, sipping the coming joy. So receive and believe in Jesus. Here's the next one. Remember, what matters to you matters to Jesus. Running out of wine was a social embarrassment in this shame culture, and Jesus bails his friends out of this terribly embarrassing situation. And what it tells us is that that no problem is too small for Jesus. Whatever you're going through, he's concerned for you. Now, um, a number of years ago, we had a dog. Her name was Brownie. She was a brown Labrador, really a great dog. We bought the dog to treat our, or, or to teach our kids responsibility. Well, the dog would have died by the time they learned responsibility. And, um, and so guess who got stuck taking care of the dog? Nancy. Nancy, are you kidding me? I couldn't get her. Okay, never mind. Uh, it was me. And, you know, my heart was really drawn to that dog, taking care of the dog day in and day out, trying to teach the kids responsibility, which they never learned. But the, but the dog got parvo, and it, it broke the heart of the kids because we thought for sure the, the dog was going to die. And uh, so I was still in the fire department and started an IV on the dog. And I'm not sure if that helped or not, but I did give her some fluids. But the, I saw my kids cry out to God, Save our dog, please. Heal our dog. And, you know, you might think, it's just a dog, go get another dog. And if you've ever had a dog and you've been attached to that dog, you know that that's not true. And, and that really does matter. And it matters especially to, to kids. And so we prayed and uh, Brownie lived. And uh, she lived to see an old age very, very old age, and, and, but, but what matters to us, even if it's a pet, even if it's something even less than that, it matters to Jesus. That's the point. Amen. And that's, that's what he's wanting us to understand here. Second Corinthians 1.3, it says that he refers to God as a father of compassion, a God of all the comfort. Did you know that when you sit down with him and you talk to him, he listens to you? And he understands, and he validates your pain. He feels your pain. In fact, the word compassion here literally means kind of that, it's that gut ache. The Greek understanding of it is like when you get that dreaded phone call about a loved one that suddenly passed away tragically, where does it hit you? Right here in your gut. You're sick to your stomach. Punch right in your gut. That's the word, compassion. Anyone here like watching a child suffer or your child suffer? No, that's a gut punch for a parent. In a moment, you would take their place. 
That's what that means, compassion. He's a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. The word comfort is the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit, helper, paracletus, the one called alongside to help. So not only is he moved by our, our struggles, but he moves in alongside of us to support us and to help us. He's a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. First Peter 5.7 says, cast your care upon him. Why? Because he, he cares for you. How do I know that he cares for me? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses and helps us with his grace and mercy. How do I know that he sympathizes with my weaknesses? Look at the cross. Always go back to the cross. And so remember what matters to you matters to Jesus. Here's the next one. This is the one I have a real hard time with. And it could be because I don't, I don't get this one here. Remember what matters to you matters to Jesus. But this next one, release your problems to Jesus and expect him to do what's best. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Mary was probably in a position of responsibility since she was, was one of the first to know that the wine was gone. So Mary didn't tell Jesus what to do. She simply reported the problem and trusted Jesus to, do, to work it out in the best way. So do you, do you hear what Mary did, basically? She, she just gave it to Jesus. It's, it's on you, Jesus. <laughs> do whatever he tells you to do, okay? And then she just walked away. So I can give my burdens to Jesus, and it seems like I've already picked them up before I even left his company. Anybody like that here? Yeah, like... Do you actually really give your burdens to him? The Bible says, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. How do you know that you've actually given your burdens over to him? You're not gonna be shaken. You won't be shaken because you trust him. Philippians 4 Six through eight, it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How do you know that you've done that? The peace of God will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. And too often, I do that, and I do not have the peace of God on my heart because I haven't really done that. I haven't cast my cares upon him. So why is that? It's because I don't really trust him. I don't. I, I don't, I, I, it, because if I did, I would give him over to him and know he's gonna work it out for my good and his glory. And I, and I would just walk away and say, it's on you, Jesus. It's in, it's in your hands. I've given it over to you. That's a hard one. This, this is, I struggle with this. I'm sure that many of you struggle with this too. And uh, the reason for that is uh, really worry is believing that Jesus isn't going to get, get it right. In other words, Jesus is going to get it wrong. Mary didn't have that problem. Hey, they have no more wine. And then Jesus says, well, what's that to me? My time has not yet come. She turns to the servants. Hey, do whatever he tells you to do. In other words, she knows he's going to do something. He's going to take care of the problem. I was thinking about this as I was working through it. How many are familiar with the serenity prayer? 
goes like this, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I started realizing that there's a lot of things I cannot change, and I'm trying to change them. No wonder I'm so anxious. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. What are the things we can change? Us, our attitude, our perspective, us casting our cares upon him. And then it says, and, and what does it end with? And the wisdom to know the difference. That's our problem. That's our problem. Worry is believing that he's not gonna get it right. And we take up that burden and carry it with us. I think it's very supernatural. And it comes with knowing him. And the more you get to know him, the more you will trust him. Lord, help me to know you. So that when I cast my burdens upon you, you will sustain me and you will not allow me to be shaken in the face of difficulty. That's my prayer for all of us. So release your problems to Jesus. Expect him to do what's best. Otherwise, we're gonna lose our joy that he came to give to us. Here's the next one. Respond to whatever Jesus tells you to do. Mary comes with a normal request. Jesus looks at her and says, it's not my time. Then he tells the servants, then then he tells the servants in a moment of social crisis to do something that looks totally counterproductive. I mean, have you thought about this? Oh, those water pots over there, those, yeah, go fill those up with water. It's like, what, how's that gonna help? That doesn't make any sense, does it? It's totally counterproductive. And this is a good picture of what a lot of your Christian life is going to look like. You're going to go to Jesus, ask for something, and you'll feel he gives you the brush off, and then he will put into your life all sorts of things that don't seem to make sense. Welcome to the Christian life. You're going to go, what? I cast my burden upon you, and I trust you, but look at, (laughs) this is even getting messier. This is a mess. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, we walk by faith and not by sight. We need to learn from Mary. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You'll never get the blessing if you don't do whatever he says. You need to be faithful and continue to obey him regardless of the way it looks in your life. Keep obeying him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Keep following him. Even when it's swirling all around you, even when it's crazy, You can't make heads or tails out of what's going on. Keep your eyes on him. Keep obeying him because he's going to work a miracle. He will do what is in your best interest. He always has your best interest at heart. John 15, 15, 9 through 11 says, we abide in his love when we keep his commandments. And then here's the, the, the last one here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always, every day. Rejoice in the Lord. This means to treasure Christ and assess his value to you and reflect on his glory and beauty until your heart rests in him and tastes the sweetness of knowing him. That takes practice. I I try to do that every day, every morning, just rejoicing in him and enjoying him. 
So what does this tell us about Jesus? He's an enjoyable person to be around. He knows how to have fun. He's the happiest being in the universe. What did he come to give us? Festival joy. How can we receive it? We need to receive and believe in Jesus. Remember what happens to you. What matters to you matters to Jesus. Release your problems to Jesus and expect him to do what's best. Respond to whatever Jesus tells you and rejoice in the Lord always. Next weekend, we have a special weekend. Um, We're gonna do a special weekend of prayer, praying for this coming election. How many think that's a good idea? Yep, praise God. And we're gonna pray for our nation. We're gonna pray for our church. And so I invite you back next weekend to do that. My wife and I will be up front at the end of the service. If you're new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we would love to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, thank you that Jesus drank the cup of, of your wrath so that we could drink the cup of your festival joy. We know that in 1 John 2, 2, it tells us that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the world, and therefore, this joy is a byproduct of receiving and believing in him. I pray for those this morning that have yet to do that, that they would do that this morning. They would come to faith in you. Help us to maintain this joy in our life by remembering that what matters to us matters to you and by releasing our problems to you, to you, Lord Jesus, and expecting you to do what's best and then to respond to whatever you tell us to do so that we can spend our days rejoicing in you always for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.